Good morning. Spirit of Jesus in me greets the Spirit of Jesus in you, and he calls us together to worship his name this morning. How many of you are glad that you are in the house of God this morning? All right. Jerry seems to still be out. How many of you are more glad to be here than in the uh, best uh, emergency room in, in Panama City? All right. Okay, yeah, I thought so. I thought so. Hey, I just want to say uh, thank you for tuning in to those of you who missed the 8.30 service because you didn't set your clocks back and who are trying to get some church this morning. Um, we are here. We love you. And uh, to all others who tune in, we love you too. Hey, have you noticed how hardly anyone anymore tends to write handwritten letters? I mean, folks are quick to shoot you a text or maybe drop you an email or if by some chance, maybe you might be lucky enough to get a card in the mail. But very few folks write letters. I, I remember in, in college, when I went to Asbury College, it's now Asbury University, my mom sent me a letter every week. They were updates on how the family was doing. They were letters of encouragement. They were reassurances of her love. Letters to, have always been a a treasure to me. And as I get older, and the fewer handwritten letters I get, the more I love them. Because letters are very deeply personal. They build up the relationship. They're ways that we can convey care and concern. And they're ways that we can encourage others to press on. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is dictating some letters to John that he once sent to seven churches in Asia Minor. These are letters that commend these churches, offer some correction of some things they're, they're struggling with, but then to encourage them to hold on and to stay faithful. What's amazing to me is all seven of these letters were sent to all seven churches. How, how would you like it if your report card and all the report cards of your classmates were sent to everyone throughout the school system? That'd be something, wouldn't it? But, but this was a way, and it was done so that all of the churches might receive inspiration from what other churches were doing right, but also it was a way of accountability because everyone would know where I needed to grow and the things in which I was being corrected. You remember the first week we did this series, the church at Ephesus was theologically sound, but it had lost its first love. It had fallen away. And what God is telling us in this modern context is make sure to keep the main thing the main thing. Always keep your priorities the way they need to be with Christ at the top. And then we found out that the church in Smyrna was a church that knew all kinds of struggle, struggle and heartache. And what God says to us is keep on. Remain faithful because if you continue on, you will be rewarded. And so today, we want to look at the church in Pergamum. So I invite you to listen to the Word of God in Revelation chapter 2 or to turn in your Bibles with me to that portion of Scripture, starting at verse 12. To the angel of the church at Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. 
You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give them a white stone with a new name written on it, a name known only to him who receives it. So this morning we, we come together looking at this letter to the church, and, and I'm wondering what is Jesus really saying to this church that is in the midst of compromise, and what might he be saying to us today? Now, you remember that the letter began with, these are the words of him who has the double-edged sword. I believe the first thing that Jesus wants to point out to them and would point out to us is he is the word, and he has the word, and that we need to respect the authority of God's word. You remember that soldiers used to wield a sword to defend from enemy attack. The people in that day would understand when he said that, that he has a double-edged sword, they would know exactly what he meant, that it was there for defensive purposes. Back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, we were told that by John, as he looked at Jesus amidst the, the seven candle stands, that out of his mouth came this sharp double-edged sword. So what does that mean? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 clarifies what a sword is when it tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's amazing to me that Jesus stands before this church and he says, I am the one who has the, the double-edged sword. This same Jesus who in John chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen. And that Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Hebrews chapter 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the hearts, the thoughts, and the attitudes of the heart. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture, that all of God's Word is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Jesus stands before this church addressing them that is facing attacks on their faith, and he says, I am the Word, I have the Word, and you need to respect the truth of the Word. He reminds them that he is the word of God and what he says is truth. You remember in John 17, 17, when he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, Lord, sanctify them in your truth. Thy word is truth. He's telling the folks that they don't need to fall for things which may tickle their ears, things which are counterfeit and worthless. The best way to discern what true, what is really true and worthy of listening to is to listen to the real thing to fend off the lies of the enemy. You, you know, those that work with money don't figure out how to detect counterfeit bills by handling counterfeits. 
that they come to a place where they're so familiar with real dollars that when something comes across their fingertips or across their eyes that isn't quite normal, they're able to detect it. And Jesus said, I have the word, the sword of the spirit, and I wield it. And you will know truth if you will follow me and respect my word. You will know what's real and what's counterfeit if you will anchor yourself deeply in the word. So he tells them, respect God's word, but then he goes on to tell this church and to tell us as well that we need to recognize the danger of compromise. In verse 13, he says to them, I know where you live. I know you live where Satan has his throne, yet you've been true to my name and you've been faithful even during a time when one of you was martyred. Then in verse 14, he says, but nevertheless, I have a few things against you. One of the incredible things about the church in Pergamum is that it had stood for truth in the face of severe persecution, but it had begun to let its guard down. You know, when Satan comes against us, he, he typically uses one of two tactics when he comes against people or churches. The first tactic he likes to use is persecution, putting the pressure on you. And the second one is more subtle, it's seduction. So Satan uses pressure or pleasure against us. And Satan had not been able to destroy Pergamum by coming to them as a roaring lion. But he seemed to be making inroads towards deception, coming as a deceiving serpent. Pergamum was known for its pagan temples. It was a very religious city, a very religious area and it was also the main hub for, for Rome and what it did there in um, those churches and in the, the churches and, and the region of Asia. So emperor worship was extremely popular there. Everybody was worshiping Caesar and other numerous pagan Greek gods. Everyone that was except for the Christians but they were facing increasing pressure to just fit in. You ever had that kind of pressure to just fit in? I remember in junior high and high school, predominantly, when I'd be out with a crew that wanted me to compromise, the thing they would say, oh, come on, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody's doing it. Just come on, fit in. Don't be such a stuffy pants. But the reality is we're not made to fit in. We're made to stand out as God's people. Now, the genius of the Roman government is that they didn't mind Christians saying that Jesus was Lord as long as they would follow it up with Caesar is Lord. But Jesus came out against that and made it very clear in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and wealth. But also, I think what, what he was saying there is you cannot serve God or anything else. You can't serve God and Caesar. You can't serve God and yourself. You can't serve God and serve your own pleasures. As a Christian, if you proclaim Jesus is Lord, you cannot say Caesar is Lord or anything else to compete or to rival your loyalty to God. 
But there were some in that church who wanted to blend into the society around them. So what did they do? They began to give up piece by piece of what they firmly knew and truly believed. Bit by bit, they began to compromise their faith. Then Jesus tells them, and he points out two specific belief systems in Revelation chapter 2, 14. He tells them to beware of those who, and those people that were within the church that had begun to practice and hold to the doctrine of, of Balaam. And then there were also those within the church that were holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Balaam was a prophet that we read about starting in Numbers chapter 22. He was hired by the king of Moab to curse the Israelites. Three different times he went to try to curse the Israelites, but God intervened and caused him to bless them. This made King Balak very angry. So in order to appease the king, Balaam told the king how they might defeat the Israelites. He said, the Israelites were subject to being seduced into pagan religion and sexual immorality through female enticement. All you need to do, Balaam said, was just send some of your pretty ladies to go and bat their eyes and to dance for them, and the men will follow them into sexual immorality and begin to adopt their beliefs and worship of pagan gods. And the plan worked. The Bible tells us in Numbers 25 that over 20,000 people of Israel were killed because they worshiped at the temple of false God. They pursued pleasure when they were supposed to be wholeheartedly pursuing the heavenly father. They had one foot in the kingdom of God and they had one foot in the kingdom of this world. You see, if Satan can't get you by direct attack, he'll sneak in through the back door and subtly get you to give up piece by piece what you had held so strongly for so long. And then Jesus says, there's some of you who are holding on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. They too mixed Christianity and the world. They taught that you could pretty much do whatever you wanted to do because even if your flesh sinned, your spirit was safe. And the people in the church fell for these sneak attacks and subtle compromises, hook, line, and sinker. And it undermined their faith and it undermined their commitment to Christ. You know, the sad thing is it's still happening today. People have one foot in the kingdom while keeping another foot firmly in the world. It's hard to know who's a Christian anymore. It's hard to know who they serve. And sometimes it's hard to know who we serve because of our actions and our words and our attitudes. Can I ask you a question this morning? If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Do, do your words and your actions match your public confession of Christ? See, the the word is not just to the church back then. This word is still a word for the church today. And Jesus would say to us, respect the authority of my word so that you can fight against all those subtle attacks of the enemy and you can stay firm and faithful 
so that when that time comes, you will be able to defend your faith and to show up and to show off God's glory. I believe we all need to hear the words of the psalmist today from Psalm 119, verses 1 through 3. Joyful, and, and I'm reading this out of the New Living Translation. I just love the way it puts it. Joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. Jesus is speaking to the church, and he says, recognize, compromise. And then he goes on to say, and if that's what you're doing, he tells them to repent from their double-mindedness and those split allegiances. Jesus tells the, the church in verse 16 to repent. Recently, my family went to Asbury University where there is a major revival that started and went for two weeks, day and night, 24 hours a day. God just was showing up and people were being drawn from all over. And as good as the music was, and as good as the spirit in the room was and how it brought just such sweet peace to everyone who entered that space. You know what I was most impressed with at that revival was the number of people who were going forward to repent of their sins and get right with God. This wasn't an emotional thing. This was just simply people seeing themselves in light of God's holiness and realizing they were not what they needed to be. And so they went down to the altar and they confessed and they repented and God was doing something very special in that space. And it's happened to, to spill out over into other colleges and other nations. And, and God's spirit is, is calling people back to himself. He's saying that you have compromised for way too long. Come back to me. Repent of what's been going on, those things that are going wrong in your life, and come back to the Father's house. Stop trying to combine the love of the Father with love for the world. 1 John chapter 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if a man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, folks, we can't have it both ways. It's not either, it's an either or. Okay, well, make sure you heard that right. It's either or. Either you're in the Father or you're in the world. There, there's no both and available here. Those things are oil and water, and they cannot mix, and they should not mix. So what do we do about it if we've compromised our faith? I believe James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10 gives us a great picture of what we need to do. Here's what James said, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And again, I love what it says in the New Living Translation. It says, purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. How do we go about purifying our double-minded hearts? Confession. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession 
and repentance. Confession is where we agree with God that what's going on is wrong. Repentance is where we say, you know what, God? I know it's wrong. Repentance is, and I will turn away from it never to go back that way again. Jesus told the church, repent. I love what what, uh, Peter said in Acts chapter three to the crowd there. Repent and return so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That's what I experienced at Asbury. And that's what we heard testimony after testimony is how God showed up after repentance, restored people and began to refresh their spirits and revive and refire and refuel their passion for him. So Jesus says, repent, people. But then he ends the letter with a promise. I love how Jesus writes. It's a love letter, really. It's, it's affirming and it's encouraging, but, but it's correcting because whom God loves, he corrects, right? He disciplines, but then he always loves and always affirms. And, and he ends this letter with a promise. Rewards will be given to those who overcome. Jesus concludes in verse 17 by saying this, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll give a white stone with a hidden name that only you know who is written on it. Commentators differ as to the interpretation of the manna and the stone. Uh, Most of them agree that they are symbolic, which makes it challenging for us in our context to really know what, what was being said. So there's a lot of differing possibilities. One group says that, that the hidden manna is actually Jesus and, and we can feed on him by faith. A- another group says that the hidden manna is, is what's going to be available to the saints of God at the marriage feast of the Lamb when, when Jesus calls us all home. There's an interesting uh, possibility here for these symbols of eternity, one from a Jewish context that I had read about and another one from a Gentile complex. The Israelites had some of the hidden manna that they received in the wilderness stored in the Ark of the Covenant. And Jewish tradition teaches that this manna has been preserved and will be miraculously used to feed all God's people when the Messiah arrives. I love that. Now, the white stone, it also has many varying uh, possibilities that, that scholars and commentators write. One says that the white stones come from the judicial system where those that were on the jury had a, a black stone and a white stone and they would cast their, their votes by simply putting whichever stone was appropriate into the basket. A white stone meaning not guilty, the black stone being guilty. And that kind of speaks, I mean, don't we love it that Jesus is going to give us a white stone and declare us not guilty? But there was also a way that, that the Gentile wor- world used white stones, and they were used as admission tickets for festivals or feasts. I, I love the fact that, that Jesus is giving us a ticket to a feast where he will take the hidden manna, and make it available for us. 
Both of these symbols point to eternal life. And what Jesus is actually saying to the church and what he's telling us today is, those of you that overcome, you will be rewarded. I don't know about you, but if Jesus says there's a reward, I want it. I don't want to risk missing out on it. And so today, I I would ask this question. How is it with you? Is this letter that was written to the church in Pergamum there and then that has been read by churches down throughout history and understood and, and helped them to get right with God, is this letter written for you today? Is it speaking about your need to anchor down in God's word and respect it? Is it telling you to watch out for the compromise that you're dabbling in? Is it calling you today to repentance? And is it reminding you that we all need to overcome in order to have the promise of eternal life? It's truly a love letter from Jesus, isn't it? My sweet, loving people, know who I am. Know my words. Let it defend you from all assailants that would try to seduce you into other thought patterns and belief systems. And if you've already gone there and compromised, just repent and come back to the Father that times of refreshing would be available to you. And remember, I'm a rewarder of those who seek me. Church, this can be a day of revival here at Woodlawn. This can be a day where we say to Jesus, if we've not already, Jesus, I want you. Everything that I need in life, I've not been able to to satisfy it and, and I've tried everything. And Jesus, today, I want this to be the day where I give all that I know of myself to all that I know and understand about you. And I want you to be my Savior and Lord. I want you to forgive my sins so that revival may enter my life. And then for others of us, this might be the day where we recalculate and recalibrate towards true north. Maybe we've gotten a little bit off track and this letter to the church in Pergamum is our way of getting back on track so that we wind up where we want to go with Christ. I don't know where you are or what you're dealing with, but I do know this. There is a God who loves you, who's speaking to you, and he wants you to respond to him. Would you pray with me today? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this group of people. And I thank you that you love them so much that you were willing to die for them. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would live a life that is worthy of you, that would honor your name. And today, God, I pray that as you walk amongst us, you you would convict us in the areas where our lives are not reflecting you and that this would be the day that we make it right. Lord, I, I ask that you would stir amongst us. Be high and lifted up, Jesus, because we know when you are lifted up, you will draw all persons unto yourself. And so as the the band plays us into this last song, Spirit, speak with groanings too deep for words, interceding for us, and help us to hear your voice, O God. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. I, I would say this too. We've got a prayer team, right? 
Prayer team, why don't you just go ahead and, and come up? Sometimes we, we fail to, to take the message seriously. And God invites us to repentance. God invites us to, to anchor into the word. God invites us to bring our troubles before him because he cares for us. So I'm going to ask the, the prayer team to come up. And if you need to be prayed over or prayed with, you just pick out one of them and they would be glad to take you to the Father's throne and pray with you. So thank you for that.